This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Now, traditional healing used to be concentrated a lot in the rural areas of Africa because of the inclination towards the traditional way of living in those areas. However, in the 21st century, the situation has changed. Traditional healthcare services are no longer confined largely in the rural traditional villages alone, but have spilled over into the urban and semi-urban areas with the influx of people from rural to urban areas in search of better economic conditions. Towards integration of traditional healing and Western healing, the question becomes, is this a remote possibility? We are going to attempt to answer this question, assisted by our esteemed panel, which consists of Shanaz Munshi, who is a research project manager and lecturer at Wits University, Lance Luskita, also a researcher, lecturer at UCT, and a PhD candidate in the School of Public Health and Family Medicine at UCT, Philippa Namute Bikabalikagwa, who is a poet and storyteller. Professor Elalwani Ramakundo, who is a professor in the Division of Occupational Therapy in the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at UCT. Dr. Jean-Paul Dussault, who is a medical doctor and PhD student of the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerpen, as well as Jessica Horn, who is the Director of Programs for African Women's Development Fund. Thank you all so much for joining us here on the COVID report. Jessica and Professor Elalwani, I'd like to start with the two of you. And I'd like the two of you to please describe for us what the decolonization of the African health system entails. So we have to engage with what decolonization and decoloniality mean. Um, Because in order to... um, do justice uh, to what those terms uh, call for in what needs to change in the health system. Uh, We need to um, stay true to what those terms really intended and uh, to also um, be respectful to where these terms arise uh, from. So, as many people um, recognize, these terminologies uh, that came about as people pushed back against colonizers. And uh, these are movements of resistance from many parts of the world, India, Africa, parts of Latin America, New Zealand from the perspective of Maori, and uh, Australia from the perspectives of aboriginals. So it is important to acknowledge that when we want to talk about changing anything, we need to reckon with what decolonial scholars have begun to name as the key tenets of um, decolonization and decoloniality. So power, knowledges, being, and doing, which um, I must say for me um, has been an important intervention from uh, South Africa, from some of us, and uh, from the work that we have done at the University of Cape Town as the Curriculum Change Working Group, uh, drawing from some of my own work, we've understood decoloniality in terms of doing 
in relation to occupational consciousness, which is really about the ongoing awareness about the dynamics of hegemony and recognition that it is through everyday doing that we either perpetuate dominant interests or we begin to undo some of the structural arrangements for hegemony and appreciating that all this has implications for health at both individual and collective levels. So it is important that we look at health systems with that understanding, that we cannot begin to change health systems without calling out power, power that is still rooted um, within colonial systems where there's very little give from um, historical colonizers to have those regions that have been colonized to set the agenda for their own health. This is where I think we have to start. Otherwise, we will only re-inscribe colonial tropes, even if we are using these terminologies. Sure. I mean, it's a great question. And in simple terms, the health systems that exist on the African continent were for the most part put in place in the colonial era. So by colonizers that came from different parts of Europe um, and largely, uh, particularly in English speaking Africa through the missions, right, in the creation of mission hospitals. So with them, they carried, of course, the colonists understanding about what disease was, about who um, carries disease. Um, um, and also, of course, the structures and all the thinking around how they felt about us as Africans. Um, and um, so we, we continue with that legacy. Our health education systems, for example, are, are almost exclusively based on uh, Western allopathic medicine. Um, we have completely subjugated the traditional medical knowledges that we have uh, on the continent, which of course were varied and vast. I mean, we know, for example, that um, in pre-colonial Uganda, there were traditions of performing successful caesarean sections. Um, I know on parts of the Kenyan coast, for example, uh, and Tanzanian coast and Swahili medical traditions, there are bone setters. There are people who can put, you know, there's immense traditions of herbal knowledge across the continent, understandings about how to engage mental health, etc. All of that was subjugated and treated as if it was not just irrelevant, but because of the religious tone, uh, also demonic. So we have, you know, the fact that none of our knowledges are actually included in the way that medicine is delivered, but that also what that did was to um, was to put in place a system where our health systems are all very much still linked to funding and policy direction um, and and ideas that come from the West. And again, that doesn't necessarily have to be problematic. It's just that it came with so much power that it's what we ourselves had and subjugated what, how, how we ourselves related. And we see that to this day um, in terms of the approaches um, that are used and in some of the gaps and deficits that we have. And the fact that really in many respects for most part of the continent, our health systems are still quite weak and kind of broken. Um, and so a decolonial interest is just an interest to actually uh, uh, rethink all of that 
and work out how do we create health systems and practices and knowledges and training and education and understandings that actually um, meet us as Africans, um, incorporate our expansive knowledges and also pay attention, to, uh, consider that what we know would be valid also, um, that communities have valid ways of understanding and engaging in and sometimes even helping to prevent things like epidemics as we saw in the context of HIV and as we see in COVID, the community is the site of resilience and what's helping us. Um, but again, to what extent does the health system actually acknowledge that there is knowledge there and help to support that? So in simple terms, again, it's really a process of trying to engage with that unfortunate history um, and be positive and proactive in thinking about ways to transform it so that we can build better health systems and ultimately better health for Africans. Now, in consideration of everything that has just been said, the big question becomes, how has a colonized health system impacted our response to COVID-19? And should we have had a decolonized health system? Would have we reacted differently? And would we have been in a much better position? And I'd like Miss um, Munshi to answer this and paint us a picture of what could have possibly been a reaction that would have not been a colonized reaction. Um, thank you so much, Sipusisle, uh, for this very challenging question. Um, and I'd, um, I'd like to begin by recognizing that um, we, we live in a kind of post-colonial Africa. However, we see evidence of coloniality that continues to pervade in all of our structures, whether there's political, economic, social structures. And what this kind of project, what this convening is trying to do is to raise conversation and question around where these elements of coloniality continue to operate, both in the health system as well as in the ways of being and doing of healthcare workers, health managers, and us as healthcare researchers as well. So if, you have, if I have to take, take a stab at your question, I would uh, consider, we would, I would like to consider that perhaps we need to back to what um, informs um, the ways in which um, we see ourselves in the world. And a lot of that is, is related to Western philosophy and perhaps this Cartesian idea of I think therefore I am, which is a very individual system of thinking about who we are and how we relate or how we engage in this world. Um, which is somewhat um, in, in opposition to maybe the, the, the African idea where, um, where, where the concept of Ubuntu in, in, in the pure um, term is, is around I am, therefore we are, which is a very community-based community understanding of, of what it is to be human um, in this world. And perhaps both extremes don't really um, um, need to be considered. Perhaps we need to complicate this idea and rethink how do we relate to one another in this world? What would be the balance or what would be the ways to, to intervene or, or interweave um, or to develop or, or to co-build um, new ways of being? And perhaps for me, um, one of the critiques I have of, of, of the COVID-19 response is um, the, the large influence of the economic ideal, the, um, the economic focus of how do we respond to, to protect the economy? How do we respond to, to protect um, people or, or communities where, with wealth, um, where wealth sits or where money and power sit? 
rather than, than recognizing that in order for us to protect each other, perhaps we need to consider um, speaking to one another in ways that people can understand. Um, instead of harsh lockdowns, um, without that deep-centered community awareness, community uh, focus, um, and making sure that we truly engage every person, um, especially those in the margins, and especially those that don't have the power privilege to be able to, to, to do the things we need to do. So, so that's my stab, and I, I look forward to hearing other views um, on this very challenging and, and important question as we move forward. Thank you very much for that. Now, Philippa and Lance, I'd like to throw my next question towards the two of you, but I'd like to also put individual shades of the question to each of you individually. Now, the question I have for the two of you is, when we look at the social issues affecting Africa as a whole, especially today, how can we start having conversations that will spark a change in transforming the African health system? Philippa, to you, I ask, how does the role the youth has to play in this exchange of information have to adapt to the climate as far as us wanting to be at the forefront of the decolonization and the changing of the African health system? And to you, Lance, how is that conversation supposed to be directed between old people, or should I say, should I say the senior citizens in, in, in charge at the moment, and the young people looking to take over the reins without alienating either person from either side of this conversation? Wow, okay. The social issues are many, and um, you're asking what is the role of the youth in all of this? I think the youth play a very uh, strong and particular role because when people are young there is always a sense of the ability to change the world there's a strength there's a capacity there's the imagination and the energy to to really engage um fearlessly i think with issues and with what is possible i really think that um one of the things that that is important in getting the youth involved also is, is really intergenerational conversation. I think sometimes when one listens to the youth, there's a sense that nothing has been done. And I think that there's the, I, I talk about the Ghanaians who talk about Sankofa, the going back into the past to fetch what is needed in order to move forward. And then the knowing of what is happening now and then the dreaming of the future. And I really feel that there's a real opportunity to, to engage with the past and to dream into the future. The issues, are, when one talks of health, in terms of social issues, you're looking at housing, you're looking at education, you're looking at um, the economy or access to, to things, resources, and there is a real opportunity to re-educate ourselves, to challenge the colonial education system, and to really look at how we can create new knowledges, building on old knowledges that are African. Um, and, and understanding that Africa, we, you know, we've been talking in this conference about Africa not being one thing, the diversity of Africa. 
and how do you bring the multiplicity of the identities and perspectives together to create something stronger and more powerful? Uh, yeah. Lance, what do you think? Thank you, Philippa, for that beautiful, um, just that beautiful depiction of and response. Um, I definitely agree with you. And I think that it's so even that as, I mean, I'm talking about myself as a young scholar, as a, as a young practitioner. Um, it's very important for us to remember that, you know, there are new knowledges. And by new, I don't mean that they are new. I mean, I, I use new, the K. N-E-W, that these knowledges are known, um, that these archives exist. And it's so important. I mean, I'm learning so much from um, people like Ella Philippa. And to remember the, the kinds of learning that comes from intergenerational sharing. Um, and I definitely agree with um, Philippa in the sense that it's important for us to reflect back um, and in South Africa in particular, that the decolonial movement and decolonial conversations did only start with um, the Roads Must Fall movement, but these are conversations that have been happening on the continent and that there are, there's a history. And so we, locate, we should always locate our current activism, our current movement building within the health system um, around the issue of um, of decoloniality as a segue to understand, to, to advancing responsive health systems as not a new conversation, but rather to locate our efforts within the history um, of our work and also to incite memory, to, 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 to draw on our historical past. And, and in South Africa, I mean, we're quite limited in the sense that, you know, it's almost like our, de our, our conversations around independence has never really been sparked. That uh, conversation around colonization has almost been invisibilized until recently um, uh, because we've been told that our history started with apartheid in many of our, in many of our formal institutions. Um, or we've been told that our history started when the colonizer arrived. And so it is so important to reflect on that history, to incite those memories and to learn with um, each other because this is a conscientization project. It is a consciousness project for all of us. Um, and it's important to remain um, radically connected. Um, and, and, and it's this process of, of, of finding um, ways of being and doing that is truly authentic to our cultures, to our traditions, to, to, to who we are, because we know that the institutions are very alienating to, to fundamentally to our histories. Um, yeah, that's kind of my offering. Thank you. And Lance and Dr. Um, Dussault, I'd like to bring you into this question. In speaking of the way Africans have done things, one thing that we have always done is traditional medicine. But we saw in the beginning of the pandemic when um, 
I'm, I might get it wrong. There was a traditional medicine that came out and I'm forgetting which country it came out of this second, but it came out and many countries said, no, we're not sure of this. This is not something that can be used to cure COVID. So my question then becomes, most healthcare professionals do not recommend the use of herbal medicines to cure certain illnesses, including COVID-19. In your opinion, what is the reason for this and why is it so? Thank you very much. I thank you for this opportunity to share my insights on this very key issue. My perspective can surprise you, but you know what we call today modern medicine is not a European created medicine. It is the spirit in the way we see it today may be dominated by some European actors. But a lot of methodological approaches used to for, for what we can call biomedicine today originate from other parts of the world, like uh, Asia with a lot of Asian uh, uh, influence or what we can call today the Middle East influences with uh, uh, Europeans at one point of the history traveling um, all over Europe to go far to learn about what today can be considered as the basics of biomedicine, of biomedical practices. My perspective on that is that there are things that are universal knowledges, that, that are part of the universal capital because black people, Africans, Asians, Europeans, Latin Americans, all of us have contributed in one or another way in building those knowledges and making them capitals of humanity. The problem is the way some part of the world consider those practices as their as those, because they try by different means to get all the benefits, financial benefits, returns or benefits um, on, on, on those issues, on, on those knowledges that at the end of the day normally are belong to humanity. So the scientific way to address, to, to answer the question what works or what do not work um, can be approached from various angles. And if there, there are some ways that can be considered as uh, um, WHO, that WHO and other kind of uh, similar organizations consider a right way to do things, there are good part of them that are, can be considered as a humanity capital, a humanity unilateral capital, but that are not Europeans capital but that are humanity because even Africans and the key black people have contributed in building those capital. So I want I would like really to separate the debate about the value of African products um, to address some global health issues as opposed to black processes that uh, research processes and the way something can be considered as um, the value that can be given to some knowledge is 
that are part of the the, cap, the knowledge capital of the humanity. Um, that said, I wanted really to 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 highlight also the fact that um, uh, when we we have this kind of global situations, all part of the world have to give the best they can, and uh, the debate is not about giving the best we can, and everybody has to give the best we can. And if Madagascar or even Benin say we have products, traditional products that can help in addressing this issue, we have to listen to them, and all the world has to listen and to respect their contribution. And uh, this is where I, I, I strongly uh, stand up against those who can just um, claim that the way they want to see those uh, contributions um, uh, uh, use the powerful domination and uh, just put a backside, just try to, 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 to underestimate uh, and undervalue those contributions using arguments that um, they are because they come from Africa or because they have not um, just because they come from Africa that they have less value. But applying to those practices and to those procedures, knowledge approaches that are universal, for me, remain key for us to, 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 to have a global system in which voice from all the parts of the world can be heard. I will apply this same way of thinking to even uh, Donald Trump claiming that this kind of drug can work and that this one cannot work without any solid grounds of evidence. And uh, once we address the issue from that perspective, I think the issue of decoloniality becomes something that is more universal than Africa-centric. Because in one or another way, my strong, I strongly believe that all form of people live in one form of coloniality, either they are aware of it or not. When someone tries to impose his model of thinking and try to push it as the only way of thinking, if we, we are in this kind of situation, we experience one or another form of coloniality. Wow. So we've just heard Dr. Dussault's very passionate stance on the matter of African medicine and how the Western world, so to speak, has always looked at and interpreted uh, African traditional medicine. So to you, Jessica and Professor Alawanya Arlowing, in reference to how herbal remedies were used as an informal cure for COVID-19, how will African traditional medicine be formally introduced in the healthcare system? And what is the process that needs to be followed in order for the World Health Organization to approve of these medicines? And then, Philippa, I'd like you to round off the answer to this question by taking us through the ways in which this exchange this moment of African traditional medicine being introduced into formal, air quote, westernized healthcare systems. Please take us through how this exchange needs the cooperation of people arming themselves with knowledge about African culture, knowledge about herbal remedies, so that they don't view 
this moment through an ignorant lens of any kind. Can you take us through the ways in which the public um, to which the, these African traditional medicines will serve as an addition to the already existing healthcare system, take us through the ways in which they also need to do the work to arm themselves with, with knowledge and to make sure that they aren't ignorant to the developments. So one thing to remember, well, there's two important things to remember about African traditional medicines. One is that they vary greatly. So herbal knowledges um, are one part of it, but also, like I said, there's many different kinds of, of, of medical intervention. Um, and of course, there are as many uh, traditions of medicine as there are African communities. Um, and so there's great variety. Uh, but the second thing to remember is that when it comes to the question of herbalism, um, that actually, uh, of quite a significant percentage of Western pharmaceutical products are actually based on um, biochemistry uh, found in nature. And so the idea of a herb being able to cure is actually not something that is foreign to Western medicine. Um, it's just more that uh, the knowledge around it is what is being disregarded. So there's a lot of bioprospecting that happens across the African continent uh, with pharmaceutical companies actually curious to know what people use traditionally because they actually then go on to, to use a lot of that knowledge to then start building Western pharmaceuticals. So I think it's very important to recognize that even they recognize our knowledge. What has happened though is that again, um, in the process of, of Western medicine becoming dominant, um, as was described historically, one of the things it did was to actually discredit all other forms of knowledge, including in European space. Um, so there were many different knowledges and it, that still happens to this, to this day. So there are many places where naturopathy is not, is not legal. Um, or different forms of medicine aren't necessarily legal in the system. So one thing that needs to happen then is really for uh, people to come together. All, I mean, to some extent, medicine needs to be systematized. It's partly to also ensure quality control. Um, even with herbalism, um, I mean, qualified herbalists from a traditional perspective will also tell you, I mean, there's a difference in the quality of the herbs. There's a question of dosage, et cetera. So, I mean, it does need to be systematized, but I think it's more an interest than an approach to, um, to acknowledging that these, these knowledges are in fact medical, that there is in fact medical uh, worth in them. And there have been some um, examples of that being done quite successfully um, on the African continent. And so I think we should also look to, uh, as well as places, particularly in Latin America um, and Asia, in, in engaging Ayurveda in Cuba, they ex have experimented a lot with things like acupuncture, etc. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting to, to look at where people have done it well also and think about how those may be used as models to actually um, create a systemic approach to this. I would like to respond to your question uh, differently, uh, uh, if you allow me. Uh, just basically uh, starting from the, you know, the basis from which we are saying we want to draw from in order to change the healthcare system. That is um, reckoning with what decolonization and decoloniality mean. And I think we need to be very um, clear that from the academy or people who are studying uh, towards some uh, knowledge acquisition um, that would inform our healthcare system, our interest is knowledge generation and meaning making, 
and perhaps um, in ways um, that resonate with uh, communities from where we come, right? That is if the academy is doing a good job in allowing for the academic space to be a place for profound meaning making, right? So in that way, we would be very cautious that as we generate knowledge, we're not simply creating um, elites um, who increasingly become disconnected um, from communities. This is important, especially in the context of deepening inequality and a very anti-black racist world. So that idea of an academy that allows for people to come in, learn without having to strip parts of themselves and be assimilated into um, institutions that actually only know how to advance whiteness and coloniality. From the perspective of communities, decolonization and decoloniality is really about self-determination and collective reliance. And I really like the um, uh, insistence uh, from Shanaz that we need to reckon with what Ubuntu means. And Ubuntu understood as a process of becoming either more human or less so. And when we look at how the capitalist expansion through Western modernity has found expression throughout the world is that there's really very little interest in humans more profit, right? So we have to be very careful that even as we talk about decolonization and decoloniality, only feeding the beast, <laughs> um, you know, serving to extract knowledge from indigenous populations, only to feed it to the beast for capitalist interests. So when, when, when you come back then to disease and illness, it has to be very <laughs> clear that we have to decolonize even the idea of diagnosis and illness itself, right? And, and, and here, what, what, what Lance, uh, uh, you know, is around intergenerational sharing uh, becomes critical. And, you know, when he, when he talks about inciting memory, and because it is important that we draw from those conversations across generations and also rebut uh, cultivated amnesia where we no longer uh, remember as ourselves and as communities. I, I like very much the work uh, done by Julie Livingston around the idea of debility, where basically uh, debility really means a condition which arises out of long-term historical dispossession of a people that strip communities of their collective, spiritual, cultural, and economic resourcefulness, resulting in their inability to manage um, bodily misfortunes in a rapidly changing world. And it, it's, this, it's, it's really key that we understand that decolonization and decoloniality draws from a different register. So when, when you look at Western medicine, 
that is centered on cure, right? You cure a disease. Whereas in many traditional uh, society, many efforts in everyday life that are about prevention, that are about health promotion, right? The idea of cure is based on fear and it's easily commodified. You are afraid of dying. We will make sure that we keep you away from death, even if we don't succeed. And oftentimes we have shown that Western medicine is limited, can be limited, um, but health promotion efforts are where we sustain life. Um, so I think we, we just need to be uh, very, very careful that we don't um, simply uh, think of uh, uh, you know, ideas such as uh, and, 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 and what uh, Madagascar uh, was, 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 was trying to do in the sense of a cure, um, but rather how to keep people healthy every day. I'll stop there and, and I'm aware that, uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Elelwani, because I think you've covered a lot into just the perspective and the way we think about it. Um, my sense really is adding to what you're saying. The other thing is that a lot of Africans are practicing their traditional healing and their traditional medicine practices um, already if you go into many areas, partly because the other medical uh, system, you know, hospitals and things, first of all, they're few and far between in many rural areas. People have to walk for miles and miles and miles. And also because it's expensive. And also, I think more importantly, because in, in many areas, the knowledge still exists. And we need to... Um, shift our perspective and not elevate the Western allopathic medical stance over our own traditional stance because we have the knowledge, it lives in the community and many community members actually do engage in these practices already and what we need to do is really uh, like Elelwani said, begin to say, how do we embrace all of this? What is the conversation <clears throat> that needs to happen between those trained in the more Western way and those trained in the traditional way? And where is it actually happening? Because in some places it is actually happening. So I think we are charged to begin to see, to look for those places where it is happening and where it is working and learn from them, go with curiosity, go with reverence, go um, with a desire to learn and to understand. And I think the decolonial program or project is really about moving away from a system that says some things are better than others, that moves away from a system that commodifies everything, that moves towards a system that says health is not a privilege, but is a right. Health is not the domain of a few people who were trained for seven years in a particular ivory tower, but health is the responsibility of the whole community and we can all engage in it. Health is not just in the hospital, but health is 
in how I am taught. Health is, is found in where I live. Health is found in my access to water. If we look for preventative and health-promoting practices that do exist and we honor those, then I think we're on the right track. And in there for me, as someone who also looks at art as something, you know, they say um, when you go to a shaman, they usually ask you, when in your life did you stop singing? When in your life did you stop dancing? When in your life did you stop being interested in your story? When in your life did you stop loving silence? Because silence is food for the soul. And when you can sing, you can speak your truth. And sometimes we're sick because we don't speak our truth. And when we dance, we move and we're in our bodies and we have courage. And when we know our story, we know where we come from and we know where we're going. And all of those things are just as important to our health as the medicines that we take and the herbs that we take. It's another kind of medicine. Now, any conversation around decolonization requires a very practical lens, as many people want to see how it will work, where it will work, and why it will work. So in light of this, we all know that Africa's health systems are already struggling, as seen in this pandemic, in terms of proper resources, with many of them having to be flown in from China and various places. How will the decolonization and transformation of health systems thrive in the already existing existing struggle of resources. And I'd like to throw this question to Lance, followed by Dr. Um, Dussault. Um, thank you, Super Sinclair. Um, I'm not Dr. Lance, but uh, yes, I can respond to that. I think it is important based on Alwani and Philippa's reflections about our understandings of the structural arrangements of the health system. Currently, we're operating in a very neoliberal capitalist um, system that has created these resource challenges because we are, um, our economic and political models for understanding notions of health or the arrangement of, of how we understand how health ought to be um, is valued in a particular way. So obviously our investment and our resources are channeled into hospice-centric kind of hospitals approaches because we want to cure disease. Um, and we, we don't actually draw on primary healthcare models where actually health exists within communities. And so if we think about uh, recent conversations in the South African health system around the national health insurance, around conversations of primary health care, we can really understand, you know, where the strategies or where the thinking should be, understanding the shifts or the transformation within the health system. Um, it is very difficult if the starting point is to commodify health. You know, if the starting point is to generate profits, if those are the starting points in the health system, of course, we will be sitting with resource challenges and resource constraints. Um, I also think that it is important for us to reflect on not only on the on the structural arrangements, but 
just understanding that people are experts of their own lives. And I think it is so important to reflect the ways in which people um, take care of themselves and that the health system and the health system actors need to be facilitators of social change, offering a space to support people in their quest for health. Um, I think preventative models is, so, is absolutely important. Um, because it is cheaper, <laughs> fundamentally, to invest in a preventative and a promotative model for healthcare. Um, and I think also the ways in which healthcare practitioners are trained within a system that is very, the training is very um, biomedical. It's only, it's what Alawani referred to as this kind of um, being understood as um, we need to keep you from dying. Um, when in actual fact, we need to keep you healthy. And we can also see with the surge of mental health issues um, that we're really struggling with. I mean, the, you know, the extent of mental health issues that we are facing globally is really, um, yeah, attests to the extent to which there needs to be radical and transformative ways of, of conceptualizing, of standing um, different ways of health. Thank you very much for this, this question. Um, I have two main messages on that. The first one is that coloniality, uh, when you link the issue of coloniality with power, and um, if you highlight the role of financial resources, I would say, and uh, who control the resources, um, with power, then you see how coloniality is really a universal concern. For instance, when you ask how independent is WHO today from those who control the resources that drive the main ideas, the main positions of WHO. And this question is not a new one and is a one, one that we have to, 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 it, that should not be a taboo. And it's in the same way, we have to ask, for instance, as a researcher, I consider myself, for instance, as a researcher, but how independent are my ideas from those who finance my research? And once we start asking those questions, we understand that the issue of decoloniality is a, a powerful way in at least starting to be explicit about the influences of resources, those who control the resources and the way this influence the ideas, the options that flow into the value systems, including in health systems, and how this affects finally the lives of people. Decoloniality is a powerful way of bringing back people and, the, and what matters for them at the century of the conversation about building health or contributing to health. And that is universal for Europeans, for Africans, for Latin Americans, for Asians, it matters. Even if colonization has been at one moment of history, 
At various moment of history, even Europeans also experienced one form of colonization or various form of colonization. But today we can be, we have to be aware about various other forms of powers trying to impose over our minds a way of thinking, mental models trying to force us to think and to frame our lives in the way that is more profitable for them and that make them leverage greater level of resources. And as we, if we see the issue from that perspective also, the coloniality become in itself a healing approach, a healing way of, uh, it's become a peace building way of, of having a, a world that is, can rest, can rest peacefully with less tensions because we make much more explicit what drives what we do. So this question is a, a very important one. And uh, uh, making explicit, starting by making explicit this link between resources, power, and health. And decoloniality is a powerful entry point in that way of, of, uh, of making explicit that link and uh, try to address it. It will take time. But the conversation starts and we have to continue it in the way to be also more efficient. There are so many problems that you can avoid and prevent just by giving, by putting people at the center of their own health. And they can already solve so many problems. And I can give a lot of examples from my research, from the recent ethnographic research we conducted in Benin to see how communities approach sexual and reproductive health at various levels of, uh, at various steps in the continuing continuum of sexual and reproductive, uh, of the sexual and reproductive life. And it is amazing to see how they combine spiritual care with herbal medicine and or we can call alternative care with biomedical medicine. How they try to integrate what works for them at the various levels, at various steps of the life. And this has become a healing way. They, they use it in a, a more syncretic way, trying to shock from each perspective what works and what matters for them. So for me, this is the one, it was a learning experience for me, as I see that they, are try, they, they have a kind of resilience. They have a, try a kind of, uh, way to, to, to integrate the best from each angle and the way this. I think the decoloniality discussion can be also a way for just giving voice to community to say, this is what matters for me, this is what works for me, and respect that as much as possible. Um, and this can be, be very efficient and uh, require so much less effort and so much less resources. And it can be, it can prevent us to waste a lot of time and energy in trying to force things that have solutions on the ground and uh, just by letting people express what they are as human beings everywhere in the world. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Tussaud. And finally, from me, I'd like to take a second to find out from you based on the research that you just alluded to. As far as 
how you think this transformation project will be easier to implement in the rural parts of Africa compared to suburban areas, if, if it will be easy to implement at all. And Jessica, if you could also take us through how your own observations of this apparent ease to implement transformation in rural parts of Africa versus suburban areas lines up with Dr. Dussault's and how you yourself see this apparent ease or difficulty manifesting both in the rural um, Africa setting and the suburban area Africa setting. I think I, I see three key words here. Awareness, expression, and action. In rural areas, what matters for people, they, they may not be aware of this global discussion on decoloniality. But what matters for them they, on a day-by-day -day basis is to survive, is to they have basic needs, and they want to address them. And every time they have this question, they ask themselves, what is the, the, the closest and the less expensive way for me to address and to solve a given problem. So from that perspective, I really see that in rural areas, what happened, this pragmatic, this survival and pragmatic way of approaching life dominates. And if we want to help in that space, what we need to do is to, to feed in those spaces solutions. And as academics, as researchers, if we really believe in our this decoloniality approach is to try to find means and approaches and solutions that solve problems of people on the ground in the cheapest and the most effective way. If African-based solutions can support them, they will adopt it and then we can, um, we can go faster than of solutions that come from very far because we are close to the system. We have just to go back to the system, be there, understand the problems and address them. And from in more urban areas where you have already conflict of so many uh, perspectives and so many approaches, um, uh, that are more global already, I will say, then this discussion have a lot of angles. We have the political angles of each. We have also the academic angle. Uh, we have the pragmatic angle also that are, that, that are there. And that is much more complex to address. So philosophers, African philosophers, academicians, um, researchers have a lot of work and role to play in making explicit what is happening in those spaces, the, 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 the forces that are in place, the ideas that are, are feeding the space, the structures that they are creating. And once they try to, to open the eyes of people on that, then the transformation can be much more effective because action can be grounded on that. And then civil society movement, youth movement, full social media, an expansion of consciousness and, uh, and richness that social media can create now can be channels for uh, make, expanding that divisions and uh, division and uh, the practical way the change can happen. So this can be my, 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 my final word on this awareness, explicitation and action.
I mean, it's interesting to think about rurality um, because, you know, in, I suppose in one respect, what the rural across Africa shares is basically a neglect by the current system. So the current system's no reach, whether it be education, health, etc. right? It's neglect. Um, what that neglect creates in part, though, is an opportunity to start from a different place because partly because of that neglect, people have actually continued to use their own logics and knowledges because they've had to um, in order to address and to think about, uh, you know, all of these questions differently. Um, I would say that that survival, the interest in survival is, is based on neglect, it's marginality. I mean, uh, uh, we shouldn't just be surviving, we should be thriving. So the fact that the rural is a space of survival is because it's been so severely neglected in our economic um, interest, in our policy, etc. It's quite similar then to marginal urban existence. And in, in marginalized urban existence, people also similarly actually tap into lots, you know, lots of different possible ways to actually help survive, right? Um, so, I mean, as I said, it's sort of, I, because I come at it from a structural perspective, but also as a practitioner, because I think that it's important to theorize, but we also need to find practical ways to make this real if we're going to make the decolonial project real. So, um, yes, there is an opportunity, but equally, what it means is that we also have to find a way to, to actively support um, the, the, the promotion of these things in rural areas in a manner that... Um, that is also equitable and just, et cetera. I come at this as a feminist too. And so, you know, we're, we're assuming that all, all traditional practices are fair. They're not necessarily, they also have their power dynamics. So, you know, their own assumptions about gender and all of those sort of things are also wrapped up in it too. It's not like power just suddenly ceases when we get into African traditional <laughs> systems. It's not the case. So, um, but but I do think what 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 is there is that in general uh, traditional practitioners, for example, uh, tend to be more prominent in in rural areas. There's a base of knowledge there. People tend to know and speak their languages more um, um, in rural areas. The stories carry. Um, people tend to perform their ritual and and collective practices more in the rural space. Um, and so what it means is that in a way it's almost like our library too that a lot of the knowledges are, are sustained in rural space, whereas in urban space, it can be a little patchwork. Um, so, but I also, in my mind, don't want to create this, such a, a, a kind of a division between, you know, kind of almost us and them. What's interesting about most Africans is that um, we're never all fully rural or fully urban. Many of us, you know, our grandmothers live in rural areas or our aunties or, right? It's not like we never go there or we're not in connection to it. So I think that there's also a point to think about a flow. But as I said, really, I think from a structural perspective, we need to think about how we age the structural inequality and marginalization of rural people, but also the fact that, again, slightly as a positive outcome of that neglect, which is a, a funny way to see it, there's actually a tremendous gold mine. <laughs> well, I don't wanna, I'm not saying it in an extractive way. I mean, gold is in magic, <laughs> gold is impossible. For us as urban, uh, Western educated people to learn something, right? To learn more, to relearn a little bit and to actually you know, reposition the knowledge even in our own minds um, and, and to think about the rural as a space of possibility and of, uh, of knowledge, of deep knowledge and learning and, and a place to, in many respects, perhaps maybe begin. And lastly, Shanaz, what are your parting lines or words for our listeners on the decolonization of the medical space 
and how COVID-19 should have or has ramped up the need for this? Thank you so much for, for that question. Um, I think, you know, just to reiterate that COVID-19 has really exposed the strong association between race, gender, ethnicity, culture, socioeconomic status, and how it impacts on health outcomes negatively of those who were previously oppressed by colonialism, apartheid, and all forms of violence. So COVID-19 has really brought this kind of um, magnifying glass on these issues. And it's also lifted these up to our consciousness for us in a way that we cannot now um, avoid. And the, the journey of this consciousness for us is, is really about shifting. And there's this quote by, by Toni Morrison that, that, that talks about um, racism um, as a distraction, where racism and uh, um, it, it distracts us from, from the very thing that we're trying to move away from. It keeps us occupied with the, with, with the problems and the structures of power and prevents us from looking to the zones and spaces and the, 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 the places of possibility. And what's interesting about this conversation is Jessica has located the rural as a space of possibility, a space of epistemic uh, change and knowledge um, exchange where, where us who are deeply colonized, deeply westernized, alienated from ourselves can maybe find an entry point to return to ourselves in a way that also Philippa has asked us to, to go back to the past in order for us to go to the future. So I think for us in this project, we, we want to decenter the West from our imaginary. We want to shift our lens, shift our gaze towards an Afro, Pan-African, Afrocentricity um, of, of, of focus so that we look to people in Uganda, in Benin, in Madagascar, in the Western Sahara, and in other parts of Africa for our epistemic traditions, for new ways, new with a K, um, not new as in brand new, but new knowledges that are known, that are there, that exist, that can inform a much more equitable world so that we can collectively dismantle the structures um, that oppress us and that we can become the thing, the very opposite of what the colonial project um, decided for us, that we can become the authorities of knowledge and the authorities of our experiences, that we can rewrite or, 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 or write ourselves into history in a way that brings us closer to our ultimate goal of health equity and, and health for all. Thank you so much. And here on the COVID report today, we sought to unpack the question, would our COVID response differ if we had a decolonized medical system? And to do that, we were joined by a fantastic panel, starting with Shanaz Munshi, the research project manager and lecturer at Wits University. Lance Luskita, a researcher, lecturer at UCT and a PhD candidate in the School of Public Health and Family Medicine at UCT. We also had Philippa Kabali-Kagawa, 
a poet and storyteller, and Professor Elalwani Ramagundu, a professor in the Division of Occupational Therapy and Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at UCT. We were also joined by Dr. Jean-Paul Dussault, a medical doctor and PhD student of the Institute of Tropical Medicine. And lastly, we had Jessica Horn, the Director of Programs for the African Women's Development Fund, sharing some insight on what a decolonized medical system would have looked like. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vets. By Voice of Vets. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or stream by www.vofm.co.za.